I want to thank Don for that uh, ringing endorsement of the men's uh, Bible study. I can hardly wait to announce something that he's involved in. <laughs> yeah, I, I know Don does have a difficult time getting up in the morning. In fact, Chris told me that he has his quiet time in bed. <laughs> Somehow that strikes me as being sacrilegious, but uh, <clears throat> it works for him. Would you turn to Second uh, Kings 13? Pay no attention to the title that's in the bulletin. Uh, the message has absolutely nothing to do with that uh, particular uh, title. I, I thought a couple of weeks ago that I had two weeks to finish this series in Elisha. As it turned out, I only had one. And so when I began to study last Monday, I decided that I would hop skip and jump through the seven chapters that, uh, that were left to us uh, in the life of Elisha. But when I came to chapter 13, I, uh, I just got stuck and realized that there is a principle here that I really wanted to elaborate for myself and uh, for you. And so we're really leaping over some, it's a prodigious leap, really, not, o- not only over a bunch of chapters, but over a bunch of years, some 45 years or more. And when we pick up the story of Elisha in chapter 13, he is, uh, as my grandkids would say, he, he's old and timey. Uh, he's in his uh, late 80s. Uh, I read in Reader's Digest recently uh, of an old gardener that referred to himself as an octogeranium. And I, uh, that's a good description of uh, Elisha, still full of life, though, though quite sick and declining in health. As a matter of fact, he's terminal at this point. Elisha was called into ministry some 60 years before this particular event, and he served faithfully for 20. And then for 45 years, God put him on the shelf. That's a long time to be in retirement. Uh, throughout the, the reign of King Jehu, we hear nothing, whatever, of Elisha. Uh, that's a long shelf life when you think about it to have endured that long without being able to say some of the things that he wanted to say but he was there waiting available for the right time I have this odd tool in my on the on the wall of my garage I have no idea what it's for but I keep thinking one of these days I'm going to have a use for it it's been hanging there for 15 years and I I've yet to throw it away because I have this uh, feeling that one day I'm, I'm going to need it. And when I need it, I'm going to know exactly where it is. And I think that's, that was true of Elisha. He was, he was waiting. As they say, they also serve who only stand and wait. He was simply available to be put to use whenever God desired to put him to use. Now, uh, we run into another blizzard of names when we start looking at this passage, and people fog out when we talk about the history of all of these kings, Jehoahaz and Joash and others. All these J's remind me of the Kramer family. Uh, Jackson and Jeannie begat 
Joshua, Jacqueline, Jeremy, Jordan, and all the rest, and you, you, you run into all these uh, J's, and it's easy to get lost in the names. I, I want to try to sketch in for you, though, what was happening in the history of Israel so that we can place Elisha in, these, uh, in this time. And so I, I'll begin reading with verse 1. In the 23rd year of Joash, son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, became king of Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord by following the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, and he did not turn away from them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And for a long time, he kept them under the power of Haziel, king of Aram, and Ben-Hadad, his son. Actually, the text says that they were under the hand of Haziel and Ben-Hadad, and that's important because of a later, uh, later reference. Now, what you have here in these verses is uh, the introductory formula to all of these kings. There's a word about their accession to the throne and the duration of their reign, and then a word about their character. This is the way God sees them, regardless of how successful they were politically. This man is said to have done evil in the eyes of the Lord because he followed the, the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jeroboam was the first king of Israel who joined Israel to her idols. He was uh, the one who taught them to idolize uh, calves at Dan and Bethel. He was not a good man. And so God gave Israel into the hands of Haziel and Ben-Hadad. Now, we've run into these names before, 45 years before this time. These are different Syrian kings. They bear the same names of some of the kings that we referred to before. But this is another Haziel. This is another Ben-Hadad. This is Ben-Hadad III because we've crossed over into another, uh, another era. And uh, Syria, because of Israel's uh, wickedness, became the scourge of, uh, of the king and, and the nation. Now, verses 4, 5, and 6 are actually parenthetical. You have to jump down to verse 7 to follow the argument. God gave Israel into the hands of Hazael, king of Aram, and Ben-Hadad, his son. Nothing was left of the army of Jehoahaz except 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers, for the king of Aram had destroyed the rest and made them like dust at threshing time. The Israeli army was shut up in their last stronghold, the city of Samaria. They only had 10 chariots left against Syria's thousands of chariots and hundreds of thousands of foot soldiers. Judah, at this time, maintained an army of some 300,000 men under arms because they recognized the threat that existed in Syria. Syria now was, uh, according to all the Assyrian mon monuments, was a tributary to Assyria. It was one of their provinces. So behind Syria was the superpower of, uh, of Assyria. And they ravaged and pillaged uh, Israel, left them destitute. Uh, no way, really, to uh, defend themselves. Now, what, what you have in verses 1, 2, 3, and 7 is what you would read in the newspapers of that, of that day. Those are the simple, prosaic, historic facts. Uh, verses 4, 5, and 6 are actually a, a parenthesis, giving us 
God's perspective on things. And you have to remember that these books are not mere history. The books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings are called history books in most of our Bibles. That's, that's the way we designate them. But in the Jewish Bible, they're called the former prophets. Because this is not history, this is his story. This is God's story. So you always see the perspective that God has on the events that are happening in the human uh, arena. And that's what verses 4, 5, and 6 uh, give us. We would not know this apart from Revelation. Verse 4, Jehoahaz sought the Lord's favor and, and the Lord listened to him. Isn't that odd? Here's this terribly uh, wicked man. Uh, he was uh, he went after the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and uh, he also embroiled Israel in a terrible, bloody civil war with her brothers to the south. And and yet, when Jehoahaz prayed, sought the Lord's favor, the Lord listened to him. For he saw how severely the king of Aram was oppressing Israel. The Lord provided a deliverer for Israel, and they escaped from the power of Aram. So the Israelites lived in their homes as they had before. Now, Jehoahaz didn't see this deliverance. He died before God saved the nation. The deliverance came through his son, Joash. Jehoash is his full name. Yes. And in order to uh, see what actually transpired, we have to look at verses 24 and 25 of this chapter. Uh, Haziel, king of Aram, died, and Ben-Hadad, his son, succeeded him as, as king. Then Jehoash, that's Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, whom we were just uh, talking about a moment ago, recaptured from Ben-Hadad, son of Haziel, the towns he had taken in battle from his father Jehoahaz three times, Jehoash defeated him, and so he recovered the Israelite towns. Now, his father did not see this deliverance, but it was promised during his time. After his death, God used his son as the instrument to uh, defeat Aram. In spite of this, the prophet tells us, Verse 6, Israel did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. They continued in them. And the text is very specific. Each individual continued in them. It's been said we get the kings we deserve. And, you know, that's, that, that's the truth. Uh, the kings were wicked because the people were wicked. Each individual, he said, continued in the sons of Nebat, uh, sons of Jerobo uh, the sins of Jeroboam, the son of, the son of Nebat. Also the Asherah pole, that is the uh, symbols of Baal's consort. Uh, they uh, remained standing in, in Samaria. So I ask you, why was God obliged to, to deliver these people? Well, he, the answer comes in verse 23. The Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had promised these uh, patriarchs, primarily Abraham, and then the promise was confirmed to Isaac and to Jacob that he would bring salvation to the world through Israel and God doesn't make promises he doesn't keep as I mentioned when we studied the life of Abraham some years ago God put Abraham to sleep so he couldn't participate in the contract 
Our salvation is not determined by our performance. It's based upon the faithfulness of God. God has promised to bring a salvation in, in the person of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we cannot lose our salvation. Once we're secure in him, we're, we will endure to the end because his word is good, will not leave us or forsake us. And because he had promised to save Israel and and to set Israel up as the instrument through which he would bring salvation to the world. He could not permit them to be destroyed. This uh, deliverance was based on his, uh, his faithfulness. And so in time he uh, raised up the deliverer, Joash, the son of Jehoiash. Uh, let's read verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to, to commit. He continued in them. So again, he had the same formula, uh, a word about his accession to the throne and then the duration of his reign and then a word about his character and he's described as someone who did evil, who continued the acts of this, of this old idolater Jeroboam and as a matter of fact, although this text doesn't tell us, we know from subsequent history that he named his son after the old idolater. He named him Jeroboam II. I ask you, why in the world would God use this man to save the nation? This is the deliverer. Well, again, we're given the, the, the divine perspective in verses 14 through, uh, through 19. And, and this is the passage that uh, really gripped my, my heart as I read it. So I read it over and over and over again in preparation for this morning. There were certain things about this text that uh, really spoke to my own soul. Let's read it beginning, beginning with verse 14. Now Elisha was suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows, and he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over a ram, Elisha de declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans, that's the Syrians, at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. All right, let's, let's try to get the, this picture in, in our mind. Uh, the young uh, king makes his way down to Elisha's house. And he's frightened out of his, out of his wits. A raid against him is the entire Syrian army. Uh, Samaria is in an indefensible position. Uh, he's powerless to intervene. There's nothing that, that he can do. He may have known of the promise that was made to his father that he would be the deliverer, but he had, he had no notion of how that deliverance would take place. 
he heard that Elisha was ill, and so he made his way down to Elisha's house. As someone has said, we listen much better when we have a tiger by the tail than when we don't. Now, here, here's, a, here's a young man who's confronted with this impossible situation, and he's going to seek dying counsel from this older, wiser man. So he makes his way down to Elisha's house. The text says that he bent over Elisha and wept over his face. I think we can picture him getting down on his knees beside Elisha's bunk and and prostrating himself over the prophet, and he bursts into tears, and he begins to weep. And he says, my, my father, my father. Yeah, Robert Bly says there's, there's not enough father. All of us are suffering from a lack of father in our lives, no matter how, how good our fathers are or were, or no matter how much they tried to, to minister to us. There's always this sense of lack. And Elisha now is going to this older man and he's, he's crying out for counsel. My father, my father, he says. The, the horses and the chariots of the Lord. And here's what I think was going on. He had ten chariots to his name. And he remembered that Elisha had the capacity to call out the hosts of, of the Lord. And he was afraid that with Elisha's departure... The chariots would depart as well. Remember the story of Dothan that we talked about last week and the invisible forces of God that were arrayed around Dothan, the hundreds of thousands of angels that were there to protect Elisha and his, and his servant. And that story was known in Israel. And This young monarch now is, is expressing his, his fear uh, to Elisha. That Elisha would pay any attention to him is a marvel of grace. He was this brash young king who really had made no room in his life for God, who probably had not consulted with Elisha during all of this time. And now he comes to, uh, to appeal for help. You would think he would show him the door. But Elisha shows him, shows him mercy. And he does what he has done so often in his life. He, he, he plays... He plays out a truth. He acts it out for the young king. Because, uh, again, parables and metaphors have an impact that uh, preachments don't always, don't always have. A picture is always better than a thousand words. So he says to the king, go get a bow and some arrows. Now, in those days, normally, uh, the king wouldn't have uh, those weapons on his person. They'd be out in the chariot because they traveled in a chariot. Uh, with uh, someone to protect them, there would be a bowman there and then someone to hold the, sh the shield. And so he had to run out to the chariot to get the weapons. He brings them back in. And uh, Elisha says, now, uh, draw, uh, draw the bow and shoot an arrow toward the east. That's the direction of, Ar uh, of Aramea, of Syria. So Elisha puts his hands on the young king's hands, much as you would put your hands on a child's hands, one who didn't have the strength to pull a bow, one who whose shot would probably go awry, and you would pull the bow for them and aim it for them. And that's exactly what the, what the prophet did. And uh, they shot an arrow into the air out toward the east, toward Aramea. In those days, a bow shot was always the way a war was declared. When armies came to clash, 
someone would fire the first shot, and that was a symbol that the battle was to be joined. And so here is a symbol being played out for this young king to prosecute the battle of Syria vigorously, declare war, in other words. The fact that his hands were on the young king's hands is an indication that it's really God who would provide the strength, the accuracy of, of the arrow. It all depended upon, upon him. And then he breaks out of the symbolism and he gives him a, a pure promise. You're going to defeat Syria, he says, at the Battle of Aphek, which apparently was the next battle. It's not... The information is not supplied in Scripture, so we don't know exactly what transpired at that battle. We know that Israel did indeed defeat Syria at that particular time. Aphek is a little town near the side of the Jordan River over in, over in Syria, and apparently that's where they joined in battle, and there was a, a victory there for the, uh, for the Israelites. But there was more. He said to, to Joash, strike the ground. Now, he didn't mean to take the bundle of arrows and hit the ground. What he meant was shoot an arrow into the ground. So uh, Joash uh, puts an arrow in and knocks it, lets fly, and the arrow goes into the ground. He shoots three times and he stops. Now, there, he would probably have six or seven or eight arrows in his quiver. They were all available to him. By this time, he understood the symbol that the bow shot was a symbol of victory over, over Syria, and the first shot that he had taken was a symbol of one victory over Syria. So he knew exactly what was going on. He understood the symbol, and he stopped short out of cowardice or lack of endurance or through some other motiv motivation that, that we're not given. But nevertheless, he knew exactly what he was doing. And that's why Elisha was, was angry. The word that's used here is a word that's used all the way through the Old Testament for the holy indignation of God. And that's why Elisha fumed at him. You should have shot all the arrows. That's the point. You should have emptied your quiver. Because now you will only defeat Syria three times. And that's exactly what happened. If you let your eye fall down a few verses to uh, verse 25, then Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, recaptured from Ben-Hadad, son of Haziel, the towns he had taken in battle from his father Jehoahaz three times. Jehoahaz defeated him. And so he recovered the Israelite towns only three times. And we know from subsequent history that what actually happened is that, that Israel eventually sued for peace. They became an ally of Syria. They were mastered by that, uh, by that other state. And they went to war in, uh, in concert with, uh, with Syria against their brothers in the south, a terrible, disastrous, bloody civil war that decimated uh, the armies on, uh, on both sides. All right, there's the story. Now, uh, again, we come back to this fundamental principle that all, all, all has to have meaning for us. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for instruction and for teaching and to teach us to be righteous men and women. So what, what's involved here. Again, I go back to G.K. Chesterton's statement that all life is a parable. This is a slice of life. What is the principle that's taught here? Simply stated, it's this. And this is very profound, so you listen carefully. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again.
Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. Now, you and I are not called upon to fight Syrians, most likely unless you join the Israeli army at some point. But we have what Peter calls the enemies of our soul. The passions of the flesh that decimate our souls from time to time. Maybe some eating disorder, maybe a sexual perversion. Uh, maybe an addiction to uh, alcohol. Uh, it may be a fierce temper that you cannot control. Maybe some other form of guile, malice, greed, tendency toward defensiveness. Uh, you and I have, you know what they are, I know what mine uh, are. I know that they're, they're the inveterate enemies of our souls. How, then, does God bring deliverance to us? Well, the same way in which he wanted to bring deliverance to Israel. And the first, the first step is this. We have to declare war against the enemy. We must determine that we will never make peace with it. Unceasing warfare is to be maintained against uh, the passions of, of the flesh. There can be no neutrality in the Christian life. The minute we let down our guard, the minute we make peace with sin, the minute we stop resisting it in our lives, then it overwhelms us and dominates us. Can't, can't drift. The very point where we often think that uh, we're, we're doing very well is the point where we're assaulted again, and that's the time when we have to take up arms against that evil thing that is inveighing against your, your soul. We need to know when those assaults come that uh, God's hands are on ours. He has promised victory. Paul says, sin will not have dominion over you. Now, I can't promise you that that truth will become true in this life. We may wait until uh, we see our Lord and stand before him perfect before sin's dominion over us is broken. But I can tell you that that promise is good. He has promised sin will not have dominion over you. You will defeat the Syrians at Aphek. That's a promise. And God doesn't make promises that he doesn't keep. The second thing that I want you to understand is that God's hands are on your hands. Very often it seems that it's all up to us, that we're the ones that have to restrain ourselves. We're the ones that, that have to do the fighting, and we're the ones that have to resist, and it all depends upon us, but that's not true. It is God who is at work at you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's true that we have to declare war on sin. We have to make a stand against sin. We have to resist these incursions of evil into our lives, but... God's hands that are on us. There's a psalm, Psalm 44, <clears throat> that was written out of a disastrous experience. Uh, uh, Israel had gone into battle. We don't know exactly the occasion. They had gone into battle and, and uh, suffered a terrible defeat. 
came back with their tails between their legs, humiliated. And the psalmist cries out to God. That's in Psalm 44. He first reminds God of the faith of their fathers and God's faithfulness to them. He says, with your hand. You drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples and made our fathers flourish. He's talking about the conquest of Canaan. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, in the light of your face, for you loved them. You are my king and my God. Who decrees victories for Jacob? Remember Jacob, the old rascal? God is not ashamed to be called the God of Jacob and to decree victory for him. Through you we push back our enemies. Through your your name we trample our foes. I do not trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory, but you gave us victory over our enemies. You put our, our adversaries to shame. The battle is the Lord's, and he refreshes his mind with that thought that in the past God was faithful to them in in battle. But then he asks that hard question, why, why have we been defeated? We ask that question all the time. We don't win them all. Sometimes in our stand against evil, we're overwhelmed and overcome. And as Bill sang, we fall on our faces in the dirt. We're only human. Uh, We're in process. We will fall and we will fail. And so that leads us to the third step in the process. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Disappointment is deadly. Get up and try again. Dust yourself off and make another attack against the enemy. Draw your bow. Take another shot. Believe that God's hands are upon you and, and take action against your, your enemy. It may be that the battle will continue until death until the, or until the Lord comes. And certainly there are times when we're desperately disappointed in ourselves, but we must never give up. Let me read something that John White wrote. Of course, he says, you'll get knocked off your feet. But it's the man or woman who gets up and fights again that is the true warrior. What would you think of a soldier who in the midst of battle sat down and said, I'm no good. It's no use trying anymore. Nothing seems to work. There's no place for giving up. The warfare is so much bigger than our personal humiliations. To feel sorry for oneself is totally inappropriate. Over such a soldier, I would pour a bucket of icy water I would drag him to his feet, kick him in the rear end, put a sword in his hand, and shout, Now fight! In some circumstances, one must be cruel to be kind. What if you have fallen for a tempting ruse of the enemy? What if you're not the most brilliant swordsman in the army? You hold Excalibur in your hand. Get behind the lines for a break. If you're too weak to go on, strengthen yourself with a a powerful draft of the wine, of Romans 8, 1 through 4, then get back into the fight before your muscles get stiff. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. God is not down on us when we're down and out. 
He's faithful even when we fail. When I read uh, White's comment about pouring icy water over people, I, I thought of another example of endurance, and that's uh, steelhead fishermen. These men and women stand out in water up, up to their chest, you know, dodging ice flows and trying to cast into gale force winds. One fish about every 20 hours, every Thousands, I'm literally thousands of casts. The reason I quit fishing for steelhead is because I brought the average down for everybody. <laughs> one, one fish every 20. They never give up. They never give up. They don't catch a fish, they try again. And that's, what we, that's the lesson we learned from Elisha's parable. Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. If at first you don't succeed... Try, try again, because we know that's what God is asking us to do. As Paul says, it's required of a steward to be faithful, not successful, just faithful. So what's required of us is dogged endurance, keeping at the task of obedience through life's ebbs and flows and ups and downs and gains and and losses, trying but knowing that it is God that is at work in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Staunchly, steadfastly, faithfully taking a stand against sin until we, until we stand before him and the work is, is finally done. And what I want you to know is that God is dogged in his endurance as well. He never gives up on us. No amount of false can really undo us, C.S. Lewis wrote, if we keep picking ourselves up each time. We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. The only fatal thing is to lose one's temper and give up. Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. Now I want to call your attention to one other... Ooh, time's out. Give me a second. Would you look at what I call Elisha's post-mortem ministry here in verse 20? Elisha died, was buried. This is the last of Elisha's life, his history. Now, Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders, so they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. Now, there's a story for you. <clears throat> Some Israelites were trying to bury a dead uh, friend, the body of a dead friend. They were apparently in an Israelite cemetery. Some uh, bandits came over the horizon, so they quickly rolled the stone away from Elisha's tomb, and they tossed their buddy's body into the tomb, and and took off, and the fellow hit the bones of Elisha, and he sat up, and the, one of the rabbis said he fathered, fathered a bevy of children after that. You know. The rabbis also say that the purpose of this story is to let us know that Elisha was one up on Elijah, because Elijah only raised one dead person, and Elijah had raised two. But I, I see it just the opposite. This man has a bag of bones. He didn't have anything to offer. 
Elisha, just like Elijah, was a person just like us, with all the limitations and weaknesses that human beings have. He didn't have any power. He's utterly impotent. And I can't think of anything more powerless than a, a bunch of dead bones. But what I want you to understand is that the God of Elisha still lives, and he still is able to bring life out of death. So just know that that's true and keep struggling against sin. Never give up because the God of Elisha has his hands on you. Let's pray. I want to thank you for this promise that, that we're in good hands, that we have your strength your ability for what we have to face. Give us the courage to rise again, no matter how badly we have fallen, how badly we have hurt ourselves and hurt others, to know that we can stand again in your strength and and move out with vigor and confidence against the enemy. And we look forward to that time when sin's dominion over us is broken, either in this life or in the next. And we cling to that promise because we know you're faithful to your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.